All right, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and uh, we'll pick up in verse 12. While you're turning there, I want to ask you uh, if you've ever been tasked to do something that you were entirely uh, unqualified for. This is where the joke at Donnie's expense would have gone, by the way. (laughs) Have you ever been asked to do something that you knew you weren't really qualified for? Maybe for you, this is celebrating Valentine's Day, husbands. You try, it's not up to it. Parents, I'm sure you pretty much feel like this all the time. Child comes, you got a parent. Not qualified. This is pretty much a day-in, day-out reality for the work of a pastor, I think. And you could probably go on down the line, your own workplace. I'm sure you've gotten promoted. I'm sure you've gotten experiences leading teams or doing certain tasks. And and you find yourself saying, okay, let's, let's do this. But you know deep down inside you're not really supposed to. And then often when you start to try to lead out in that work, people might kind of bow up and push back and say, you don't know what you're doing here. And you feel exposed, right? It's like, I'm caught. They've they've figured out the fact that I I don't really belong here. Paul has been through the ringer with the Corinthian church. He has had some some ups and downs, and he's had to to say some hard things. He's had to do some hard things. He's had to go out of his way to care for and to plant and care for, rebuke uh, this this small church. And, And one of the obstacles that he's run into is the fact that for all of his strong words, they, they really don't seem to be impressed with him. He speaks boldly, but he's, he's unimpressive. He's, he's underqualified. He's weak. And as we'll see in this text, the Apostle Paul knows it. He's, he's actually quite aware that he doesn't measure up. But he has had to press in and press on because he has this overwhelming sense that he has been captivated and commissioned by God to present the Corinthian believers mature in Christ. He has work to do. And yes, even though he is not really in and of himself that impressive, he has a job to do. It's a job that he would, he's going to later in this passage kind of capture as, as being the aroma of Christ. He sees that it is his responsibility to present Christ to the Corinthians and see them established and built up in Christ. This phrase of aroma of Christ and the various fragrances that we'll we'll look at in just a second, they they are kind of evocative for us. They give us, they they touch our, our senses, don't they? He knew that he was supposed to be among them as somebody who gave them a sense of the reality of Christ. He was supposed to be among them as, as one who communicates the weightiness of, of the gospel. And he knew he did not measure up. Not only that, but in this text we're going to see that he is the aroma of Christ to God. One of the great mysteries that Paul feels in his work here among the Corinthians is that he has to be something among the believers and among the lost that is fundamentally unto the Lord. He is the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Paul has this overwhelming sense that everything that he's doing is not primarily between him and the Corinthians. It's primarily between him and the God who has called him, who has commissioned him, who has burdened him for this work. 
Let me set the stage a little bit uh, for what we see in these verses. Paul picks up in chapter 2, verse 12, uh, picks back up with the narrative that he's kind of been telling of the story between him and the Corinthians. Just a, a quick refresher on what's been going on. Paul had, had made a, a painful visit to the Corinthians in order to correct some of their errors and, and even rebuke some of their members. And during that visit, he was opposed pretty strongly by at least one of the members. And Paul left that visit uh, and, and things were not going well. He did not kind of enjoy it. It was a, it was a hard visit. Things were not settled. And so he goes back to uh, Ephesus, which was kind of his home base at the time, and he writes what he calls this this heartfelt letter to them, where he's, he's pleading with them, he's begging them because of the work that he feels burdened by God to do, to, to uh, repent fully and to accept his ministry. And in the text uh, before us today, if you look at verse 13, we see that it is probably Titus, one of Paul's kind of young associates. It was probably Titus who was the one who delivered the letter to the Corinthians, and Paul was, was nervous about that. He didn't know how they were going to receive it, and so he was eager to hear back from Titus, and, and so he left Ephesus, and he went north a little bit to the city of Troas, and he thought if, if Titus was going to come, that's where he was going to, to meet him most immediately. But time passed, and the last kind of ships before the winter uh, came in, and Titus was nowhere to be found, and so Paul is, is unsettled, the, the text tells us. He says, my spirit was, was not at rest in verse 13, because I did not find Titus there. And so Paul, knowing what would happen if, Paul, if Titus could not get on a ship and meet him at Troas, then he would have had to travel by land. And so instead of meeting him in Troas, he'd have to go kind of in this big circle through Macedonia. And so Paul says, I've got to get to Titus. And so Paul himself goes on and travels through Macedonia. He wants to meet Titus on the way. Now the, the text here in chapter 2 doesn't tell us what happened. He just says, I'm a, I, I wanted to go to, to Macedonia. In fact, there's a, the opening of a parenthesis that starts in verse 14 that is not closed until all the way in chapter 7, verse 4. We don't, we don't really get a sense of what happened, but if you want to just kind of, spoiler alert, I guess, let's go ahead and flip over in your Bibles if you want to look in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 5, we can, we can pick up and see that, that Paul did meet Titus in Macedonia. He did get a report of, of how the, the Corinthians had received Paul's letters, or sorry, his letter. It says in 2 Corinthians 7, 5, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted, sorry, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. So he told us, as of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. So you get the picture here. He, he meets up with Titus, and Titus is able to effectively give a good report. Titus had gone to Corinthians. He had delivered this heartfelt letter that was pleading them to, to turn back, to, to repent of their sin, to, to receive Paul's ministry. And in general, we can say that that kind of happened. Now, not everything was tied in a nice and tidy bow, as we'll see in the rest of 2 Corinthians. But Titus did, in fact, have a good report, and Paul was, was greatly encouraged. But the question remains, why? Why does Paul press pause on the narrative and go four chapters without ever actually saying, here's how you received him? 
Why is it that he leaves us at verse 13 and doesn't actually answer the question of, of how, uh, how the Corinthians had received Paul's letter? When we look at the content, we look at the substance of chapters 3, 4, 5, 6, and the beginning of 7, what becomes clear is that Paul took this space to provide a, an extended uh, defense and explanation of the why, of, for, the why for, for, for why Paul acted so boldly, so strongly, so urgently, so passionately towards the Corinthians. Why does this matter so much to you, Paul? Why is it that you came in here and even though you're not very impressive in yourself, you really pressed in to, to make sure that the gospel took root in Corinth and to make sure that they received your ministry? Why did Paul do that? And he spends four chapters explaining the work that he feels he was burdened to do despite his own inherent weaknesses, despite his unimpressiveness. Paul had been captivated and commissioned by God to present Christ to them. He was not going to give up. He had to be among them the aroma of Christ. And although Paul's ministry was, was unique as an apostle, the language he uses is in some sense true of all believers. We, like Paul, are invited and called to be the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Friends, you and I have a similar responsibility to as those who are captivated by the gospel, as those by our, who are commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ to be the aroma of Christ to God among the world. And so I have, I have three encouragements for us uh, from this text that I want us to see as we pursue this work of, of being the aroma of Christ. The first one in this text I want you to see is first encouragement I have for you is to love God's people and to even love them sacrificially. In verses 12 and 13, this weird thing is happening as, as Paul is explaining the narrative of his interactions with the Corinthians and Titus and all that kind of stuff. And in some ways, it just look like, it looks like his travel plans. But if we, if we, don't, if we go too fast, we're going to miss the fact uh, that, that Paul had to make some real sacrifices in order to put feet to his love for the Corinthians. If you look in verse 12, it says, When I, when I came to Troas to, to preach the gospel of Christ... Even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest. Paul's sense of God's calling to be the aroma of Christ instilled him a deep in him a deep love for the people of God, even when he has incredible gospel opportunity right at his disposal. Did, did you catch what happened there? People were getting saved. Like the gospel was going forward with power. It was taking effect. We don't really have a lot of information about uh, this visit to Troas. And in fact, if you want to look in the book of Acts, it's Acts 20 verse 1. It just says, Paul, Paul says, uh, we went through Macedonia uh, and then on to Greece. And somewhere embedded in there was a stop at this little place called Troas, where apparently, according to his letter to the Corinthians, Paul says, things were happening. The gospel was being preached and people were responding. In fact, we know a little bit later in Acts that when Paul returned through Troas, there were Christians there. Like the, the church had taken root. So much so. Let me give you an example of how much the church had taken root in Troas. When Paul returns back through Troas, he decides, let's get the Christians together and let me preach a little sermon. 
Okay? And people are like, yeah, let's hear Paul preach. And so Paul preaches late into the night, so much so that this young man named uh, Eutychus, who's sitting in a window, falls out the window and dies. Paul had preached so much, so long, and people were willing to sit there and listen to him. People were literally dropping dead. And then Paul heals him and brings him back to life, and it's pretty incredible. But it, it's just a, like the church was vibrant. Like stuff was happening here. And yet, and yet, Paul was unsettled because Titus had not yet brought word from Corinth. Paul's call to be the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved was holistic. He was not just interested in in getting them saved and moving on. He had a deep concern for the people of of Corinth. He had already evangelized the the Corinthians. He had already rebuked the Corinthians. And in our human understanding, how easy would it have been when they were starting to push back on him to say, you know what? I'm done with this. I'm done with these people. They're they're stiff-necked, they're pushing back, they're rejecting my teaching. Somebody else can deal with them. I have been called to to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. I've got to go among the lost and and bring the gospel there. And yet Paul, who has the work to which he feels like he's been called to in the expansion of the church, laid out right in front of him in Troas. And yet, he's willing to set that aside because of his deep love and concern for the Corinthian believers. He couldn't he couldn't bring himself to sacrifice them on the, on the altar of the missionary impulse that he had. His love for these believers was, was too overwhelming. His commitment to their growth and their maturity and their development was, was too strong so that he, he didn't even have news. He was just going in search of news for these, for these, of these believers. Let me ask you very simply, brother and sister, does your love for the people of God lead you to great personal and even ministry sacrifice? Do you love God's people as part of this calling you have received to be, to be a, a fragrant aroma to the Lord in Christ? Has that propelled you to make great personal and even ministry sacrifices so that you can see others presented mature in Christ. That seems to be the need in in Corinth. It's a discipleship lack that they had. And we often talk and we often dream rightly about the sacrifices that we'd be willing to make or that we need to make to take the gospel to the far ends of the earth and say, I would, I would sell all my possessions and go around the world to make disciples and plant churches. Let me ask you, will you lay aside the things that are at your readily available to you right where you are to present your brothers and sisters mature in Christ? Will you take advantage of the, the, the or will you really respond to the call and the responsibility to, to present one another, to help them mature in the faith? Does your love for them, does your concern for them compel you even to great personal sacrifice like it does for Paul? For Paul, being the aroma of Christ meant that he had this, this great love for God's people that propelled him even to great personal and ministry sacrifice. So number one encouragement I just want to give you is is love the people of God. 
Love the people of God among you. Love the people of God that God has placed in your midst and in your sphere of influence that he has, he has invited you to present Christ to them over and over and over again. Do not neglect this, this weighty opportunity and responsibility we have as God's people. The second encouragement I have is to proclaim God's gospel. This is kind of the meat of, of uh, our text this morning, verses 14 through 16. In verse 14, Paul begins this this process of interpreting theologically the role that he has had with the Corinthians. And he begins with a a somewhat confusing metaphor. You see it there in verse 14. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. That sounds quite pleasant, right? God is leading us in triumphal procession. Thanks be to God. The only problem is that this image of the triumphal procession is primarily the image of a conquering king or a general who has captives kind of behind him. He's, he's gone out to war and then he's, he's won the war and he comes back home. And in this triumphal procession, and often what these kings or generals would do is they would have the captives kind of trailing behind as a demonstration of of the king or the general's great victory. Paul sees himself and his ministry primarily as one who has been captured, who's been, in a sense, overcome by God's victory in Christ. Now, what he's not saying to his fellow uh, Christians is that he is following Jesus kind of unwittingly or begrudgingly, unwillingly even. He begins by saying, thanks be to God. He's happy about this. He's excited about this. But he is fundamentally seeing himself as as a servant of God, as one who has been overcome, overtaken by this God. In addition, this image reflects it makes us think about the fact that we as sinners are rebels against God, are we not? We, we, we hate Him in our flesh. That's really what the Bible tells us about sinners. We are against Him. We are not just naively innocent, uneducated people. We have rejected His rightful rule and reign over our lives. And so it's appropriate that Paul kind of understands that if he is going to be in Christ at all, it's because Christ has has overcome his rebellion. He has captured him in his state of, of opposition, and that opposition has been crushed. And now the conquering king is using him for his purposes to proclaim the same gospel that saved Paul to others. You see it there in verse 14. Not only is he leading us in triumphal procession, but he's through us spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. God in his grace meets us in our sinful and rebellious state. And he, in his graciousness and his mercy, even as Donnie just talked about, as he sets his love on us as particular sinners, and he says, come into my family. He's overcoming our rebellion in Christ. He's doing everything that needs to be done in order for the relationship between us, the rebels, and him, the king, to be reconciled and made right. Paul has received this amazing gift. And then as the servant, as the conquered one, as the captive one, he's now put to work. And he said, I'm going to use you to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of God everywhere. Verses 15 and 16 kind of elaborate on this work and and explain uh, why even things maybe have not been as smooth as you would hope in Corinth. 
See, if, if, if it's this amazing kind of gospel presentation, why isn't it that just everywhere Paul goes, that as he preaches this gospel, as he's embodying this fragrance of, of Christ to everyone, why isn't everything just people are just bowing down? Why isn't everybody kind of among these, these captives? In verse 15, it, he lets us know that the, 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 the gospel divides. The proclamation of, or the, the spreading of this fragrance, it makes distinctions. It's not a one-size-fits-all thing. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To, to one, we're a fragrance of death, from death to death. To the other, a fragrance, fragrance from life to life. As we preach the gospel, brothers and sisters, we ought not be surprised by extreme responses. If you're committing yourself, if you, if you conceive of yourself as one who is committed to being the, the fragrance of the aroma of Christ among the lost in the world, you need to understand that there are really only two responses to this. There's only two ways to receive this message. To some, we preach Christ, and it is received as a message of life that leads to life. These are those who are, are being saved. And friend, you need to be comforted by that. Brothers and sisters, IDC members, we need, to, we need to reckon with this. When we preach Christ, there are some who will hear that, and when they hear the message of the gospel, it will, it will come to them as life. It will come to them as something that, that, that pours life into them. They hear the message of the crucified and risen Jesus, and it just is balm to their souls, and they will understand it to be life for them. This is the message of the good news of the gospel that is for them, and they're going to receive it, and they're going to respond to it, and they're going to walk in it. And we need to, because of that reality, we need to preach Christ boldly. We need to preach this gospel with kind of reckless abandon because there are some who are going to hear it and it is going to fall on their ears as though it's everything that they've ever been waiting for. But to others, we preach Christ and it's going to be received as a message of death. It's going to be a mess, preached as a message of death that leads to death. It's going to be seen as something that is, that is destructive. And Paul says these are those who are, who are perishing. What's very clear to Paul is that his message doesn't change. It's the same aroma. It's the same message. It's the same gospel. What makes the difference is how those people that hear it respond to it. And you know what? We are not responsible for that. Our, we are not responsible for the fact that some are going to respond to the gospel and see life and some are going to respond to the gospel and see death. You know what our responsibility is? To be the aroma. The, the distinction is made in how they receive it. What our responsibility is to, to embody and live out this aroma. We preach Christ. Some will receive, some will reject, but we just preach. We proclaim Christ. So, believer, let me just ask you, are you prepared and are you willing to preach Christ in this way? Let me take those one at a time. Are you prepared and willing to preach Christ? Many of us probably are willing. We probably want to preach Christ. Let me ask you, though, are you ready? 
Do you know how to proclaim Christ in this way? Do you know how to hold out Christ in such a way that people can, can accurately understand this? They can, they can be around you, they can listen to you, and they can get a sense, this is a gospel I've got to do something with, either to, either to embrace or to reject. But can you hold it out to others as something that they must, that they must do something with? And then are you willing, if you know how, have you thought about the people in your life, the people in your circles of influence that maybe perhaps the Lord has, has placed there for the purpose of you being an aroma of Christ to them so that they are confronted with the beauty and the, the glory of this Jesus? Not just can you present this gospel, not just can you hold out this Christ, will you? Will you take up all of those opportunities You are not responsible for how people respond. You are responsible for the proclamation. Now, I want to be careful when I say uh, you're not responsible for how how people respond. Some people, and I think this is uh, a minority among our midst, uh, but some people hear that as basically a license to be a jerk um, and say, not my problem, you've got to deal with it. And I don't think that's what, what Paul is talking about here. I think what he's telling us is we are not the ones who can affect people's hearts. It's the gospel that that changes their hearts. It's the Lord who works through this proclamation of Jesus. That's that's what changes people's hearts. You don't need to throw additional barriers in their way by being somebody that nobody wants to be around or listen to. Okay, The Lord might save people despite you being a jerk, but you don't need to lean into that. Okay, Unbeliever. Non-Christian, somebody who cannot say with great confidence that you have been taken captive by this Jesus. I don't know why you're here this morning. I don't know why you're listening online. What I do want you to know is that we have a glorious message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hold out to you the Lord of all the universe, who took on flesh, became a man in all of our weaknesses, relates to us as a human. But all the rebellion that marks you and me, not a stain of it on him, not even a little bit, a perfect life lived, and yet despite his perfection, he died the death that you and I deserved. He received the judgment from a holy God that you and I rightly deserve. And then he rose from the dead so that anybody who attaches themselves to him in faith can can have eternal life with the God who created them. That is a good message. And I can't help but think that if you're listening to this right now, that that message is being held out to you. But pay attention to this passage because you need to understand that message is divisive. It's, it's kind of an affront to our sensibilities that Paul conceived of himself as somebody who's received this gospel as a captive. We don't come to this Jesus and just take all the good things and live our lives the way we want. We come to him and we submit our entire lives to him because he is worthy of them. And that is offensive to, uh, to many. It might be offensive to you. And I just want to hold out the message of the gospel and say this has to be for you. It's being held out to you right now to receive him, to trust him, to find life in him. But I also want to warn you, there is no middle ground. 
He is an aroma of, he is life to some and he is death to others. And the message that we preach is an aroma to one of those things to you. And I just want to plead with you, consider this Jesus. Consider him for who he is in all the glory and the beauty and the grace that is available. He's being held out to you as a loving savior. What keeps you from him even today? Aroma of of life, aroma of death. As we seek to be an aroma of Christ, we, we want to love God's people. We want to preach God's gospel. The third encouragement I have is to just depend on God's grace. Reflecting on the weightiness of preaching this message of eternal consequence, uh, Paul has, has really the only appropriate response. It is, it is to marvel and to feel this deep sense of inadequacy. This is where Paul can kind of meet his critics. They're like, Paul, you're not that impressive. He's like, I know, right? Paul, you don't, you don't really seem to, to be, have too much going on, going for you. And he's like, yeah, guilty as charged. And so he, he, he kind of marinates on the, the glory and the privilege of being able to both receive and proclaim, to, to observe and also extend this, this gospel. And the only thing he can do is really step back and say, is anybody sufficient for these things? Is anybody really good enough to do this? And the subtext there is, not really. Not really, Paul. You're, you're not really able to do this. When, when Paul's critics attack him and say, you're not that impressive, he says, I know. I know I'm not sufficient for these things. And the implication is the only way that this is going to work is as he relies heavily on the grace of God in him. See, Paul is not trying to puff himself up. He's not really trying to advance his own kind of uh, 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 dignity, his own other's perceptions of him. He's not trying to promote himself as far as getting money or anything like that. He actually puts himself directly in contrast to those kinds of people. You look in verse 17. For we are not like so many, so many peddlers of God's word. The implication here is that there are people who are going around preaching some kind of gospel as some kind of self-advancement or some kinds of means to gain for gain. And Paul says, I'm a captive. I am an unworthy servant who has been commissioned to be the aroma of Christ. And I can't really do that on myself. But as men of sincerity, commissioned by God, in the sight of God, before him, accountable to him, we speak in Christ. Others have a ministry that is, that is supposedly Christian, but is, but is fundamentally a vanity exercise. And Paul is saying, the reason, guys, the reason I'm pressing in is not for self-advancement. It's not for personal gain. It's because I have been commissioned by the grace of God to do this work of proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ among you. I love you. I care for you. And I'm accountable to the Lord in holding out Jesus and saying, don't give up. Don't back down. Keep pressing in to this gospel. And praise God, the testimony of of 2 Corinthians is that they did receive that warning. They received this invitation. They turned away from many of the things that they were chasing after. But Paul is saying, as as he goes on, as we're going to go into the next several chapters, he's going to explain, this is not about me. This is fundamentally about the grace of God working on me and working through me for your good. And so we speak in Christ. Recipients of his grace, clothed in his character, faithful to his message, we preach Christ.
very similar to what Paul would say to the Colossian believers. Colossians 1, chapter 28, 29, he's very adamant, Paul. He's very consistent in what his concern is. He says, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. To the Corinthians, he's basically saying the same thing. We love you. We're concerned for you. And because of that, we will not back down in the face of your opposition. We will not stop preaching Christ to you. We will not recoil from what God has called us to do. Brothers and sisters, members of IDC, let's embody this same aroma of Christ to God. Let's commit ourselves to love one another as a, as a reflection of his love. Let's, let's commit ourselves to proclaim his gospel to all people. It will be an aroma of death to some, but praise God, it will be an aroma of life to others. And we have the privilege of holding it out. And let's do this all in his name, dependent on his grace and unto his glory. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for the privilege of entering into your service as recipients. God, we confess again that we, in our nature and in our inclination, are nothing but rebels against you. Sinners, those who have rejected your rightful rule over us. But God, we really stand in amazement uh, that for those of us who you've, you've shown your glory in Christ to us, that you've welcomed us not just to... Uh, to be trophies of your grace, Lord, but to be propagators of it, to be those who extend that grace to others. So we pray, Lord, that you would use this church body, use the the members of, of IDC to not only bask in your grace, Lord, but to faithfully proclaim it and extend it out to others. God, and we pray that the effect of that would be that many who are in this city, who right now are far from you, would come to the saving knowledge of Christ, that they would they would have this life that we enjoy, that they would receive uh, the, the, the joy and the satisfaction in knowing and being known by you, be reconciled to you. God, find us faithful to this task. May we do so with the lost. May we do so with, with one another as we care for, support, and love one another. God, even at great sacrifice, may all of that be a pleasing aroma to you and a testimony to the watching world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.